Chances are pretty good that my family's Thanksgiving dinners are a lot different than yours. There's no turkey or buttered rolls or green bean casserole drenched in cream of mushroom soup. Instead, we have homemade tofu turkey, Brussels sprouts dressed in vinaigrette, and rolls with an ingredients list that was very carefully inspected in the middle of a chaotic grocery store aisle to make sure it didn't contain animal products. But I'm not vegan, and neither is my mom or my brother or any of the guests we usually invite over. The architect of this animal-free feast is my little sister, Eva. Eva has always loved animals, and when she was 13, she connected the animals she loved to the meat on her plate and decided that eating animals was something she didn't want to participate in anymore. And like pretty much every decision Eva has made in her life, she's still just as dedicated to it nearly two decades later. Back when Eva first went vegan, that tofu turkey on the Thanksgiving table was our family's way of serving something we were all able to enjoy. But as Eva has become more involved with animal rights activism, those meals have turned from a mix of vegan and meat-based dishes to a spread completely free of animal products. If they weren't, Eva probably wouldn't attend. And we care more about her than we do about what's on our plate. As a result, Eva has made me think about my food in a way that I don't think a lot of meat eaters have to. When I eat meat, I have to contend with the fact that my meal was once a living, breathing, feeling being. I have to actively make a choice to contribute to that being's death. I make that choice, and it doesn't always feel that good. Now, that's not to say I always wrestle with those feelings. I can ignore them. I can make excuses for them. Even contending with them right now, I can't honestly say that I think eating meat is wrong. But it's important to at least think about what's on our plates and whether we feel okay about what it took to get it there. And considering that talking about pain, suffering, and death isn't exactly appropriate for the dinner table, most of us never really have to think about it. What it takes to make our meat is a huge taboo. So today, we're going to have the kind of conversation that would probably get you kicked out of a backyard barbecue. I'm not going to lie. It's probably going to be uncomfortable. But uncomfortable is what we're all here for, right? I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask.
When we talk about whether or not it's okay to eat animals, the first thing we need to realize is that everyone has some animals they don't feel comfortable eating for ethical reasons. So what is it that makes us draw that line? I think I'd like to answer this question by starting with a little thought experiment. I would like you to just imagine that you are eating a delicious, juicy hamburger. And the person sitting next to you turns to you and says, actually, you know, the hamburger you're eating isn't actually from cows. It's made of golden retrievers. Now, just take a moment to reflect on your thoughts and feelings. I mean, chances are what you had just seen as food, you now see as a dead animal. And what you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. And so rather than continue eating the hamburger, you probably, you know, want to throw it away. I'm Dr. Melanie Joy. I'm a social psychologist. I am an author. My best known book is Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. And I'm also the founding president of the NGO Beyond Carnism. Carnism is a word that Dr. Joy coined back in 2009. And it's since been adopted by activists and writers as a general term that means, well, I'll just let her tell you. Remember how you responded to the Golden Retriever Burger? Your response is the result of what I call carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. What what carnism does is it disconnects us from our authentic thoughts and feelings when it comes to those animals we've learned to classify as edible. And carnism is a global phenomenon in meat-eating cultures around the world. People learn to classify a small handful of animals as edible, and all the rest we learn to classify as inedible, and disgusting and often even morally offensive to consume. So like, even though the type of animals consumed changes from culture to culture, members of all cultures tend to think of their own choices as rational and of the choices of other cultures as irrational and often disgusting and as I said, morally offensive. For example, in the United States, there's a taboo against eating animals we keep as pets. Dogs, cats, horses, guinea pigs, I could go on. We also don't eat insects. But cats and dogs are commonly eaten in China. Horse is common in Europe. Guinea pig is popular in many South American countries. And the majority of world cultures eat insects. Meanwhile, many of the animals Americans eat are off limits in other cultures. Cows are sacred in Hinduism, and pork is forbidden in Islam and Judaism. If there's anything we've learned from this podcast, it's that taboos are almost never universal. So cultures around the world consider certain animals edible. And according to Dr. Joy, carnism is the belief system that leads them to do that. But if nearly every culture in the world sees at least some animals as edible, why do we need a word for that belief? Well, because it's not the only way to believe. What I have been most interested in is how over the course of time, as we have, you know, become no longer reliant on eating animals and yet continued to eating animals, the way that we have psychologically related to this phenomenon. Like today, you know, eating animals is not a necessity for many people, not for everybody, but for many people in the world today, we don't eat animals because we need to, to survive We eat animals because we choose to, but we don't even realize that we're choosing to eat animals because 
eating animals is such a given. It's just for us, it's, it's really just the way things are. So we tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But the only reason that we learn to eat pigs, but not dogs, for example, is because you know we do follow a belief system. So when eating animals is, is not a necessity, then it's a choice and choices always stem from belief. So I would say that the reason that we eat animals at all at this point in time is for those of us who are economically able to make our food choices freely. There are many people in the world who cannot do that at this point in time. But for those of us who can make our food choices freely, we eat animals not because we need to, but because we're operating from this belief system that I'll call carnism. But the belief system is invisible. So we don't even realize that we're following a belief system. If you eat meat, it might feel a little weird to name the belief system you follow. It's kind of like a white person realizing that they have a race, a heterosexual person realizing that they have a sexual orientation, or a cisgender person realizing that they have a gender identity. The dominant group never has to think about their identity or belief system the way that a minority group does. And when they do, it can bring up uncomfortable feelings. Of course, the examples I just gave aren't a matter of choice. And most of the time, carnism is. What's important to appreciate, I think, is that carnism is an ism. It is structured like other systems of oppression, you know, other systems that are organized around one group of individuals being harmed to benefit another group of individuals. Here we're talking about farmed animals and, you know, human animal consumers. So the systems themselves are structurally similar. Of course, the experience of each set of victims of these systems of oppression will always be unique. But the mentality that drives the oppression, the mentality that drives the violence is the same. The same mentality that enables us to carry out harm toward other humans is the mentality that enables us to carry out harm toward other non-humans. I mean, most people we know care about animals and would never want them to suffer, especially when that suffering is is so intensive and so completely unnecessary. And yet most people eat the bodies of dead animals on a regular basis and contribute to an industry that they would find deeply offensive if they were really fully connected to the reality of what they're supporting and what they're consuming. And when we're born into a dominant system like carnism, we inevitably internalize it. In other words, we learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. And so we basically adopt its defense mechanisms. Because carnism runs counter to what most people would be willing to support, it runs counter to rationality and to our core values, carnism needs to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms that distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural empathy so that we act against our core values and we act against our own interests and the interests of others without fully realizing what we're doing. One example is abstraction, sometimes called de-individualization. So carnism teaches us to think of farmed animals as lacking any individuality, lacking any personality of their own. So we learn to think, for example, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. We don't learn to think of dogs, for instance, as abstractions. And so, you know, when I used the example of the golden retriever earlier, probably in your mind, 
you saw a picture of an individual golden retriever when I said, imagine that you're eating a golden retriever, because we haven't been conditioned to think of golden retrievers as not being individual beings with feelings and preferences and personalities and, and lives that matter to them, just like all of us have lives that matter to us. Another example is objectification. So we learn to see farmed animals as objects, as things for consumption. We refer to them as, as living things sometimes. We you know, call them units of production. And I mean, we tend to refer, for instance, to the chicken on our plate as someone rather than something. And these psychological mechanisms are, they're distancing mechanisms. They distort our perceptions so that we're distant. They distance us from our empathy and from the impact of our choices. The primary defense of carnism is denial. You know, if we deny there's a problem in the first place, then we don't have to do anything about it. And the main way that denial is manifested is through invisibility. So one way carnism remains invisible is by remaining unnamed. If we don't name it, we can't identify it, we can't question it, we can't challenge it. Carnism also keeps itself invisible by keeping its victims out of sight and therefore conveniently out of public consciousness. So for example, in just one day, more farmed animals are slaughtered globally than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. I had to fact check this, and it was honestly even more dramatic than she made it sound. The total number of people killed in all wars throughout history is a tricky number to pin down for various political reasons, but it's likely in the hundreds of millions. More than 150 million tons of seafood was produced for human consumption in 2016 alone. That's just seafood and in tons. The number of individual animals is way higher than that. Now, she said farmed animals, and farmed seafood only accounts for about half that number. But we haven't even gotten to the animals you sing about on Old MacDonald's farm. Every year, we slaughter about 300 million cows, 1.5 billion pigs, and 50 billion chickens. So yes, the number of farm animals slaughtered in a given day is just about equal to the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. But you could also put it another way. The number of animals we slaughter in just two years is equal to the total number of humans who have ever lived. It's a lot. And to just take a step back here, I always fact check the claims made on this podcast, but I feel like that's especially important for this one. After all, it's really tempting to react to uncomfortable facts with denial, and that's easier if we think Dr. Joy is just making this stuff up. But I also need to keep this podcast brief, so instead of jumping in for a verification of every figure, I'll just use a quick sound effect. When you hear this, just know that I fact-checked it and I found it to be true. You can find those sources in the show notes, as always. Anyway, back to the huge number of animals slaughtered on a daily basis. Like, really think about this number. And yet, most of us don't see a single aspect of this process or a single individual who ends up becoming the meat, eggs, or dairy on our plates these animals are raised and killed in a manner and with a speed 
that would horrify us, that would absolutely horrify us and offend us so deeply if we were truly connected with it, that most of us would be on the streets demonstrating instead of in the supermarkets paying for this killing to continue. These individuals are, you know, often slaughtered while they're still conscious. They are, the babies are, are castrated and have their horns and tails cut off with no anesthesia whatsoever. Baby chicks, uh, chicks who are born to, to egg-laying hens, the males who are of no use to the egg industry, are they're killed immediately after birth. They're of no economic value. And so they're, you know, they are either dumped into a grinder and ground up alive. They're gassed. They may be thrown in garbage bags where they die from suffocation. That last fact is unfortunately 100% true. I just wanted to pop in and mention that France and Germany have now adopted a way to determine the sex of an egg early on using DNA analysis so that male chicks are never born in the first place. United Egg Producers pledged to do that in the United States starting in 2020, but they've had problems scaling the method. So while they say they're hopeful, they're still engaging in the practice of male chick culling, as they call it. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. The violence of carnism is such that for most people, it's unbearable. And, and so we consumers make carnistic industries job easy for them. They tell us not to look and we choose to turn away because it's easier and because carnism gives us the tools with which to do that. That's uncomfortable, right? But like, do animals really feel pain the way we do? Isn't that just us projecting our human feelings onto animals? Animals that might not even possess consciousness, much less the ability to feel things like fear or pain, right? Well, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information today, scientific data today that demonstrates that um, non-human beings are, in fact, sentient and conscious individuals who can feel pleasure and pain. And anybody who has ever, you know, lived with a dog can tell you this, Um there's a tremendous amount of information documenting this. Most people don't need it documented. And, you know, that we have to be very, very careful with um, finding justifications to harm others. You know, it, it's not terribly different than the kind of thinking that was used up until the 1980s when babies were, um, you know, people did surgery on babies without anesthesia and thought, well, you know, neonates, infants, you know, don't have developed nervous systems so we shouldn't project adult experiences and emotions onto them. Let's just not worry about anesthetizing them when we're cutting into them. So we have to be really careful with this. I mean, fortunately today, this very old myth that you know other animals do not feel, do not have nervous systems and feel pleasure and pain the way human animals do is very much a thing of the past. The idea that animals might not feel pain is more of a technical question than a practical one. All organisms, right down to single-celled microbes, move away from unpleasant stimuli like toxic chemicals and electric shocks. Mammals, birds, fish, and some invertebrates also have areas of the brain and nervous system that correspond to the same areas we use to feel pain. But when you get right down to it, we can't ever really know what an animal is feeling, just like you can't ever really know what another human being is feeling. But at this point, the safe bet is to assume that, yes, non-human animals can feel pain. 
At this point, my usual thought process goes something like this. Okay, yeah, killing is terrible, and I don't want animals to suffer more than they have to. But humans evolved to eat meat. We're just doing what we've been doing for millennia. Humans have never eaten anywhere near the amount of carnistic products that we do today. But nevertheless, it is true that humans have been eating animals as part of an omnivorous diet for, for many, many years, for um, millennia. We have also been raping and murdering for equally long, but we don't use the longevity of these practices as a justification for them today. So I think we need to be very careful. And again, just think very critically when we are making these claims, you know, what is it that we're trying to justify and what is the lens that's shaping our desire to justify in the first place and how we interpret what we're looking at. To that, I might say being ethical is one thing, but being healthy is another. I mean, you literally cannot sustain a vegan diet without vitamin supplements. And I know people who were vegan for years until they got sick and their doctors made them start eating animal products again. Yes, eating too much red meat is bad for you, but it seems like going too far in the other direction isn't too good for you either. So I think one really important step is just recognizing the dominant bias that exists. And then, you know, being really careful about how, how we look at the data. and. I am not a nutritionist, obviously, but I do know many medical practitioners, and I know there's substantial scientific data demonstrating the health benefits of a vegan diet and the dangers of a, a carnistic one. And, you know, the drawbacks when we think about people who say, I tried to be vegan and I got sick, we have to be really careful with that information. Many people who eat a carnistic diet become sick because of their diet. We know that there's a direct link, you know, causal link between eating animal products or carnistic products and heart disease, um, type 2 diabetes, obesity, a variety of other problems. The challenge is that when somebody becomes vegan and if they start having any kind of physical symptoms or thinking they're having physical symptoms and they go to a doctor who's not really aware of the fact that they're biased, it's not uncommon for that doctor to automatically say, well, it must be your diet. It must be because you're vegan. So we have to be very careful and critical about how we kind of parse the information. I mean, you can eat a vegan diet and not have a healthy diet if you're eating all processed food and junk food, just like you can eat a carnistic diet and have a very unhealthy diet. Many, many people do. The difference is that we don't automatically assume that when somebody is eating a so-called mainstream diet, that their diet is responsible for whatever ailment they're experiencing. You know, so many vegans have told me over the years, like hundreds of them, that they, they get a cold and they hide it from people in their lives because as soon as they sneeze, their friends and family will say, it's the diet, right? But the guy next door has quadruple bypass, you know, surgery. And it's like, oh, bad genetics, right? So this, this framing, this carnistic framing drives so much of how, what we notice, what we remember, and what kind of meaning we make of the experiences that we have. Another objection to veganism that people toss around? Vegans are just so insufferable. I mean, I don't say it. Not just because my sister's vegan, but because I'm a marathon runner who like meal preps and flosses regularly and fact checks my friend's Facebook posts. I have no right to call anyone insufferable. But 
Dr. Joy says that this popular opinion of vegans is just another tool that carnism uses to stay in business. Carnism teaches us to feel defensive, as I said, against anyone or anything that challenges our own carnistic mentality. So we tend to have a perception of vegans that makes it harder for us to be receptive to the information that they're sharing. It's a form of shoot the messenger. If we shoot the messenger, we don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. So for example, you know, we tend to see vegans as um, overly emotional. This is a, a common stereotype. Vegans are overly emotional, animal-loving sentimentalists. If somebody is overly emotional, by definition, they're not rational. And people who are not rational are not worth listening to. This same stereotype has been used to discredit people who were, um, you know, working for the abolition of slavery in the United States. It has been used, you know, against the suffragists who were fighting for the right to vote, for women's right to vote. And if you think about it, the emotions of moral outrage and grief, for example, are really appropriate emotional responses to the global atrocity that is carnism. Much more concerning from a psychological perspective is like the widespread numbing and apathy that marks the dominant culture. So there are a whole bunch of different ways that we, different stereotypes that get projected onto vegans, but these defenses are really designed to ensure that the system carnism remains intact. Listen, if this is all seeming a little overwhelming and too much to take on, I'm with you. I mean, when you start thinking of all the ways you can be unethical with your food, it starts to feel kind of hopeless. Like, what about veggie burgers and soy dogs and non-meat that pretends it's meat? That's still sort of continuing the idea that you have to have something that looks like meat at every meal. Is it really a choice between animal suffering and straight soybeans for the rest of my life? Well, meat alternatives, you know, basically anything that gets us away from having to kill in order to consume has got to be better than the current system that we're operating within. And what's really interesting, most people don't realize that attitudinal change often follows behavioral change. Many people who are advocating for social just various forms of social justice or, or change assume that you have to change your attitude. We want to make, help people like when it comes to veganism, for example. It's totally understandable. You want to help people make the connections that they don't want to eat animals anymore. You know, you just lose your desire to eat other animals because instead of seeing them as food, you see them as, as you know, dead pieces of flesh. And so you don't want to participate in the atrocity and you're kind of repulsed by it. But we also know that when people change their behaviors, their attitudes often follow. And so the less meat, eggs, and dairy somebody eats, the less they have to defend, the less defensive against being open to animal rights, you know, and concerns for animals in general they are. So anything that helps get people away, reduce their investment in the oppressive status quo that is carnism has got to be a positive thing, as long as it's not obviously supporting other forms of exploitation. Yeah, and that reminds me of the, I know people who, who get solar panels on their houses are more likely to support climate change initiatives. They don't do it because they believe in climate change initiatives. They do it to save money and then suddenly they're in favor because they're already helping. Right. Yeah. So going into that, if someone does feel like they don't want to contribute to the system, I mean, 
going completely vegan is a very large lifestyle change. What what can they do in the short term to, to do that? I mean, it, it's it's a less large lifestyle change than it used to be. And it depends on where you live. I mean, if you live in LA, for example, it's like almost a no brainer at this point. However, to your point, many people are not willing or able to just go vegan overnight. And I always recommend that people try to be as vegan as possible. I mean, nobody can be more vegan or anything than what's possible for them. And I encourage people to like really think of this, the issue in this way. It's not that either, you know, you eat animals and you're part of the problem or you don't eat animals and you're part of the solution. Like there are different ways to be a part of the solution because we're not simply talking about changing a behavior. We're also talking about transforming a system and the system is carnism and the animal rights movement and veganism really needs, this is a cause that needs all the help it can get. So be as vegan as possible. Each time you sit down to a meal, ask yourself, how vegan can I make this meal? If everybody in the world became as vegan as possible, the world would become vegan pretty quickly. I mean, the reason we have so many vegan options available today is not because of the core group of, you know, hardcore vegans, it's because so many people have reduced and have increased demand for vegan foods. I also encourage people to be what I call a vegan ally, which is a supporter of veganism, even though they're not yet fully vegan themselves. Some of the people in my experience who have done the most for this cause, actually just on, a, on an impact, on the level of impact, are not vegans. They're not people who simply, you know, I don't want to minimize not eating animals. I think it's important, but there's a lot you can do even if you're not fully vegan. There are people who have used their influence. This is what vegan allies do. They use their influence to help in the transformation of carnism. So like you would actually be a great example of a vegan ally. Here you are having a conversation with me, encouraging your listeners to think differently about their relationship with their food choices. Some people who have interviewed me and you know written articles that have reached hundreds of thousands of people around the world probably do much more for the cause than an individual who just doesn't eat animals during their lifetime. So use your influence, be an ally. Some of the people who donate to my organization, Beyond Carnism, they're not vegan, they're not even vegetarian, but they wanna help the cause. I do believe that it's really important for people, regardless of where they fall on the carnistic continuum, to get informed, you know, to, to get informed, not just about the consequences or the reality of animal agriculture, but, but to become informed about carnism and to really understand how this system has shaped your, your preferences and your perceptions and your feelings and driven your behaviors. Because when you become aware of carnism and of carnistic defenses, they lose a lot of power over you, you know, and then you're in a position to make your food choices freely. Without awareness, there's no free choice. So regardless of what your intentions are, I just think it's really important to commit to raising awareness. And then you can choose what role you want to play in the system. Because for better or worse, we're all participants. The choice is not, you know, whether we participate, but, but how we participate. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thank you so much to Dr. Melanie Joy. I was honestly really nervous about this conversation because, you know, I eat meat. 
But she was a delight to speak with, and I'm so glad she agreed to come on the show. You can get more information about the topics she spoke about on carnism.org. And you can pick up the 10th anniversary edition of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows with a new foreword by Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens. The links to both of those are in the show notes. You can follow Taboo Science on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Taboo Science, all one word, or just visit the website to find it all in one place. That's taboosciencesho This is officially the first episode of season two. If you've been with me the whole way, thank you very much for making it here. And if you're new, check out the other episodes. You don't need to like follow them in any order or anything. Just listen to whatever suits your fancy. And you know, maybe leave me a review when you're done. That's all for now. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>